Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Alrighty. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Trey. And we are continuing at a very slow pace through Matthew, the book of Matthew in your Bibles. Uh, if you have your phones or a Bible, we even have some in the back. We do promote thievery here. You can take one of those home if you'd like. We won't judge you. Uh, but we're going to be in Matthew 8, as Paul was reading. As we kind of get into this, if you look behind me, uh, we are working our way through Matthew, and there's kind of seven parts to it. We're in part three, and what has happened is Jesus who Matthew is kind of giving us this 360 portrait of, is, uh, is giving us all this beautiful understanding of who Jesus is. And what's cool about Matthew, if there's, uh, there's four depictions of Jesus, the four Gospels, and Matthew is focusing on letting people know about who Jesus is in light of the Old Testament, so the first two-thirds of your Bible, and how he's fulfilling all of these things that had been spoken about him thousands of years prior and before uh, he comes. And, and so it's, it's really beautiful and it's cool to see. But now we're at this point where Jesus has given this beautiful, long teaching. It would be like if he was up here for like a few hours, which would be pretty crazy. And, uh, and he gives us this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that, he gives us this idea of what even Zach hinted at, is this kingdom that we all have our own kingdoms, that Jesus has his kingdom that he wants to call us into, and that in the midst of that, there's all this beauty around it, but it's, it's, it's completely upside down to the world that we live in. It's completely contrary. And so he teaches on that, but now, like anything, talk is just talk until you get to see it, right? And so what he's doing now is he's kind of coming down off that teaching, and now he's doing crazy things. And when I say crazy things, I mean he's healing people. He's kind of breaking racist lines. He is um, he is loving and reaching the outcast and the disadvantaged and, and honestly people like us, which is cool. And so we, we got to talk about that a little bit yesterday or last week, but this week is actually a really hard passage. It's hard to teach. It's, it's, uh, you read it and if you just read it at face value, you'd be like, this seems a little extreme. This Jesus guy is pretty crazy and which is fun to dissect, but not so fun when you just read it at face value. And, and so as we get in there today, like I so said, we're in Matthew 8, I, I kind of want to pose this question because I think it's going to be the thing that is on uh, the, kind of the top of our brains as we, we learn about this. And it is really around the area of freedom. Really, what is, what is freedom? Uh, you know, America, like we have our own perspective of what freedom is. And we, you know, we, we talk about freedom typically in terms of I can do whatever I want, right? Like, or we, we fought wars to get freedom or, or whatever, and, you know, I, I was asking this question to myself as I was reading this passage, preparing for it this week, is, is asking myself, was Jesus in his life and his words and his teaching and his, and his death and his resurrection, was Jesus the true definition of freedom? One of the things that we see um, in the Gospel of Matthew later, I'm, I'm cheating ahead, um, several weeks ahead, but is that, that Jesus is one of the most um, dependent people on earth, and he's dependent on God the Father. And it's kind of this weird, like, it's hard for us even to understand, but uh, Jesus is, is doing the will of the Father, God the Father, and they're both God, but he's following God the Father's will for his life. And so in one hand, we see him having to do things that he's not specifically saying he wants to do, or he's not, he's, he's praying to God the Father, God the Father is telling him what to do. So on one hand we read it, and we kind of like, this, this guy doesn't seem like the most free person I'd ever know. 
And so when you ask yourself, was Jesus the true definition of freedom? Sometimes we have difficulty saying yes, even though you probably feel like, Trey, Trey, you want me to say yes. That's the right answer, right? Like, but, but we ask ourselves, do we believe that? And why or why not? Why do we, why do we not? I wrestle with it because I had to realize, well, and this is very philosophical, but what is, what is freedom? Because you kind of have to ask that, right? Like, what is freedom? Freedom for one person might be slavery for another person. Free, freedom in general might actually be dangerous. Like, if you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, if we didn't have laws, some of them you're like, that's awesome. Like, if I'm in a stoplight and there's no one around, I should be able to drive through the red light. Like, can I, can I get an amen? Anyone? Anyone else? <laughs> like, it's 2 a.m. All right, I'm not waiting for the sensor. I'm going to go. There's no one around. You're like, get rid of that law. But then there's other laws that we are very thankful that we have, right? That, that your bank account can't just take all your money and be like, sorry, it's too bad. Or there's plenty of other ones, right? So freedom when we think about it, is typically only within our own parameters of what, what the good life, what we think is worth it for us and maybe the, our loved ones, people around us, is worth it. So when we talk about freedom today, you know, I, I was asking these questions to think about. Does freedom ever have restraint? And is restraint a good thing in freedom? Does freedom cost something? Does it even cost the recipient of freedom something? You know how you'll say, people who fought in wars, you know, they say, I fought for your freedom, right? And it costed me something. But is the recipient also, is it costing them something? And when we look at the life of Jesus, I, I believe, even though it's not always hard to trust, is that he is the true definition of freedom. But when we, when we look at his life, there's moments where he calls us to things and he does things that outwardly, I think, instead of us saying he's not free, it completely shifts and shatters our idea of what freedom truly is. And so today is all about freedom, but it comes at a cost. And, uh, and I, I think this is probably the, the simplest way to phrase it. There's this verse in Galatians 5. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but it says, it says just, just plainly, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, that Jesus set us free. And it says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again, again, by a yoke of slavery. It's a, so it's apparent here that those who are not, like, that Christ came to set us and people, sinners, free of slavery, that we are enslaved, and that he set us free. And so in this passage, I want you to think about what is freedom and how is Jesus being the true depiction of freedom and how is he calling us into freedom? Because freedom costs something. So in verse 18, and we're going to start off in this passage, I'm going to kind of walk through it with you. Verse 18, this is in Matthew chapter 8. It says, Now when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side of the lake. And so th this is a little bit of a, what's going on here. Jesus gives a sermon by this lake uh, in, uh, near the city of Capernaum, which is where he was residing. And, uh, and the crowds are growing. He's starting to become super popular. He's like a famous, he's like on Hollywood uh, Boulevard, and he's getting Starbucks, and everybody's seeing him. And they're like, oh my gosh, and they're flocking him. And so what he does is, this is what, why I like to start with verse 18, is because He's letting us know that the crowds are not everything to him and that he actually believes that there's, there's beauty, there's, there's advantage to, to these small clusters that you'll see him constantly retreat to, these small groups of people. And so by, le by, by ordering them to go to the other side of the lake, because the Capernaum is on the south side of this like sea, they call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's basically a giant lake, um, they're, they're leaving all those people because people would either have to run around the lake, which would be like a day. I mean, it'd be a long trek. You can't, it's not like a tiny lake. It's massive. Or they'd have to get their own boat, right? Not everybody has boats. They have to pile in boats. It really starts to ask the question, is this really worth it, right? It's like if, um, 
if you, if this guy said, hey, like, if you, this is sketchy, but if you show up here, I'll give you $1,000, and you show up at whatever, Walmart parking lot, right? Um, and you're, like, wondering where this analogy is going. I'm wondering myself. And, and you show up, and he's like, he's like, yeah, like, and you're like, can I have my $1,000? He's like, well, you got to follow me 100 miles. We're going to go to Toledo, and then I promise I'll get you it. Like, there's a deeper level of commitment now. You, you have to decide, is this truly worth it? And Jesus, when he was giving these sermons, it was very convenient. You know, people would go up on the hillside, beautiful day, get to hear these profound words. And now he's like, all right, well, I'm leaving, so we'll see who follows, right? And, it, and immediately you can tell the crowds definitely don't all follow. And that's okay. But he's being strategic here, and I think he's asking, he's trying to create this idea of, do we really, is following Jesus really worth it? And so what we're looking at today is two different people. Um, you could call them like case studies, because what is happening is Matthew when he writes this gospel, he's putting pieces together that aren't always chronological, which means that when you read Matthew, it's not always like this happened and then the next day this happened and this happened. He's, he's creating a, a beautiful theme of all these things that did happen but not always together. And so if uh, we could have the slide put up, this would be best explain it, Sarah. Um, this is from the Bible Project, the video. So last week we covered those three uh, miracles and now he, he's, we're reading the follow me part. Then he'll do three more miracles, another follow me, and three more. So these will be our next several weeks. But what Matthew is doing here is it's not like this all happened perfectly. In a, in a, he's, he's conveniently showing you these pieces, and then he's further kind of reinstating the, the power of them. So um, when we get to verse 19, this is where Jesus is, is, is calling us after these miraculous things he did to follow him. And this is what he says in verse 19. He says, Then an expert in the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In fact, if you're reading uh, different, a couple different translations, it might not say expert in law, it might say scribe, but basically all that means is they were gung-ho about the Old Testament that we read. They knew all the, the law at the time, the Jewish law. And this is pretty provocative. Like, this is like you in your friend group, you all are making fun of someone or whatever, and it's like you, you're peer pressured, so you're just kind of standing there and like, yeah, because you know, you're insecure and you want them to be your friends. And, and all of a sudden, like, this would be like you being like, hey, everybody, stop it. Like, I'm going to go this way. For this scribe, this expert in the law, to say this was, was completely against the, the group of experts in the law. So this guy clearly was somewhat devoted or at least tugged on by what Jesus had said. And he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, this is interesting um, because Jesus, when he replies here, is very unique. And we kind of have to figure out what he's really getting at here. Um, but, but basically, this, this, um, this scribe is, is saying like, I will follow you, and I will learn your teaching, and I will, like, and I will go with wherever you're currently going. And, and what that means is, and what he thought it meant, the scribe, is that when you were, um, let's say you're like, back in the day, they were kind of like academics, right? A best way to describe it is like in college, where you have a professor, maybe you have like a TA or a teacher's assistant or whatever, right? And they study under them. Or, that's kind of what he thought this was, right? And that's what he had grown up in. He was an expert of the law, which means that you would walk behind a is a uh, rabbi, which means teacher, and you would learn their teachings, and then their teachings would refine your teachings, and then you would teach those, and just, it was just this endless cycle, right? Well, he's thinking, like, I'm going to follow this guy, and I'm just going to, like, learn his teachings, but Jesus, what we see is that he calls us to something much deeper than just words, like even Zach said, right? It's just, is it just knowing stuff about God? No, it's much more than that, right? It's not just knowing things. It's not just knowing the Bible, even though those are important, and we know this because several weeks ago uh, in Matthew 4, Jesus calls uh, these disciples that we talk about, which are like his 12, if you've heard of them, this crew that follow him. And what he says here to them is really unique. We kind of this is, this is this is several weeks ago, but I'm going to read it. It says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, 
he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. And he says to them, follow me and I will turn you into fishers of people. So in this instance, the scribe is thinking, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be like intellectual. I'm going to teach this type of teaching, right? Now, the Peter and Andrew, though, first of all, they don't even get to say, I, I, I want to follow you. Jesus is like, follow me. It's like he's demanding of them. And not, not only is he saying, he's not just saying, follow me and learn my teaching. He's saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Meaning, you're going to live a lifestyle. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna live not just words, but actions. You're going to live a certain way in which, like, that's what requires of, being, of following me. You can't just walk behind me, learn the things I say, say the things I say, and that be it. There's this lifestyle to it. And so the scribe here, it, this is kind of what he's thinking. And so then when you read verse 20, if you go back to where we're at, Jesus says this. He, says, he said to him, Foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man, which is him, has no place to lay his head. Based on this reply, it's obvious, like, Jesus knew, like, okay, this guy has no idea what he's saying. Like, he has no idea what he means when he says, I'll follow you wherever. He's like, this is not the thing that you think, right? It is not just knowing stuff. It is not just doing the right thing. It is falling behind me and knowing, in the process of following me, uncertainty is around the corner. <laughs> Which is ironic, because Jesus, not only here, is saying, like, uh, you have no idea what's going on, but he also knows that that night he's going to be sleeping on a boat. <laughs> so this passage is like, not only like, he's not just saying it to be profound. He's like, yeah, I'm, I might sleep on a boat tonight. Like, I don't have a home, literally. <laughs> and so he's putting his money where his mouth is. And it reminds me, if you're an Office fan, I, it's only a matter of time until I quote the Office up here, but there's this episode called Christening, and I just could not get the picture of Michael uh, out of my head where he like wants to go with the youth ministry trip on the bus to like go do this service project and he gets on and he's because he was mad at his own office they like weren't family enough or whatever and he gets on I think with one other person maybe Andy or something and and he's like so excited right he gets on the bus and he's like this is described like I'm gonna follow you wherever I go and then 30 minutes into the trip he's like hey how much farther you know and it's like 10 hours or something and, and then he it's just like this moment where his face just like he's like what am I doing what did I get myself into? And then they pull over, they get off the bus. It's a classic Michael moment. But it's kind of like that. This scribe has no idea, and he's, at some point, Jesus is basically saying, you don't realize this, but in about 10 minutes, you're going to say, what have I gotten myself into? So I'll do it for you. Here's what you're getting yourself into. And it starts to beg the question, when, we, when we're talking about people who follow Jesus, and that if we use the analogy of getting on the bus, right, because of the sake of the office, would you rather, and I ask myself this question as a pastor, would I rather have a very full bus that about 30 minutes in, everybody's off the bus? Or would I rather have a bus full of 10 people who know what they're getting into and who follow and faithfully pursue the trip that's ahead of them? Now, here's the thing. What looks sexier at the beginning? The full bus, right? Party time, we got t-shirts, the bus is full, yay. But then an hour in, you're like, we're not gonna make it. Everybody's off, you know? And, and so what he's saying here, what I think, he's the, Jesus is, in my opinion, the worst salesman ever, because he's not, he's not trying to motivate you by fear. He's not trying to get into guilt. He's not like this used car salesman who's like, don't worry, it'll ride. Don't worry. Like, you get off the street, it's going to be great. And then you take a drive off the lot and like half the car falls off. And you're like, oh my gosh. He's like, no, no, no. Let me show you like what this car, the, like the problems, the damage. Because whenever you buy this, you need to know what you're getting yourself into. And so it's, it's not, this is not the most warm, fuzzy message, because, but in some ways it's what we need because there's nothing worse than being pumped about buying a used car the second you drive it off the lot. You're like, what did I just do? 
And, and so he's not, he's not pulling any punches here. He's not trying to like manipulate us, to deceive us. And I love this story because Jesus isn't trying to trick people into the kingdom. It's not like this little like scam where he's trying to make you think, oh, it's really worth it. It won't require anything of you or your life and you can just sneak in and live however you want. And so this goes back to that idea of freedom we're talking about. What is freedom? If you have your kingdom and you have Jesus' kingdom, you cannot live in both because what that will be is slavery because they, they are at odds with one another. And I think a lot of us, Christian or not, are enslaved because we're, we're feeling this weight, even I'd say in Zach's story a lot, right? Feeling like almost enslaved to his own wants and, and thoughts that, that you're realizing I'm missing true freedom because I want both. Because I want what Jesus gives me, but I don't actually want to give anything up. And by not giving anything up, you're actually enslaving yourself. And that's a really hard teaching to believe, to understand, to believe day in and day, in and day out. But that's what he's doing here. Is he's saying, you have no idea what you're getting into. And so that's one disciple. We go into another disciple. Uh, and it says this in verse 21. It says, another disciple said to him, so this is helpful because we know that that scribe was like, he, want, he did want to follow Jesus. Another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And I don't know about you, that's a tough passage to read. Like that would not sell t-shirts. And, and so we got to do a little bit of work here figuring out what is going on, Right? Jesus here, and I think there's a reason why Matthew gives us this little vignette in between, is he's giving us the first guy who's dealing with a misconception of the kingdom, right? He didn't know what it meant to follow him. And Jesus is saying, hey, uh, trust me, here's the way it is. And what's really cool about even what he just said earlier that I kind of glazed over was he uses the phrase of himself called the son of man. And if you're like nerdy and you like to take notes, that's the first time that Matthew uses this phrase. And he'll use it, he'll use it 29 times in Matthew 80 times total in the Bible. But the Aramaic, what it means is, it's essentially saying he's human. And so what he's saying is like, I'm not going to call you anywhere that I haven't gone. And he's saying to this scribe, like, the misconception that you have of the kingdom, I'm not just telling you to go somewhere that I haven't gone. I'm not just, like, I have no place to call home either. And I'm going to sleep on a boat tonight. And so then there's this level, of, okay, that's a misconception of the kingdom. The second guy here, what he is, is it seems like he's excited about the kingdom. I and mean, he kind of understands it. But the world and in, in in these, these, this, his father apparently is getting in the way. And so there's a lot of explanation on this. Um, there's kind of two camps that figure out, okay, what's going on here? Because this passage seems kind of crazy, pretty extreme. Um, but it, it helps to have some background. The first camp thinks that just basically the guy's father was dead and Jesus is just showing you, hey, you got to give up everything to follow me and including your bearing your dad who died. That's one camp. The second camp, which I'm giving my bias, but that I align more with, and I see more compelling, is that his father was not likely dead yet. The reason why is because in the Jewish culture, this is really nerdy, but sorry, I have to give you this explanation, is that in the Jewish culture, if someone died, you had to bury them within 24 hours. And if you were the eldest son, which in this case sounds like he was, you, you were in charge of all of that, the vigil, the planning, and the preparation. He would not be out in the streets listening to Jesus teach he would be at home because he has 24 hours to bury his dad. So it's unlikely that his dad would, would, would have been dead or potentially even dying. It's almost this idea of like, and, and I've actually felt this in my own life, I have some examples, but just as a broad example, it's kind of like this idea where you're like, well, 
um, I can't do that thing yet, but once I graduate college, or once we, once we get into a new house, or once this thing slows down, it's like really what he's doing here, and we read it, and it, it just seems very personal. I mean, I can't imagine, like, that's a pretty big, like, that's a good excuse, right? A very good excuse is that, he, you know, he's giving this excuse, is that we, we, we just can't play games with Jesus. And this passage, and what it, I think it's truly getting at, is, is no matter the weight of the things that get in our way, that Jesus wants to be first and foremost in our affections, in our heart, in our life. And even things as great as this, Jesus still takes serious. He doesn't respond, and this is interesting, he doesn't respond and say, like, ah, I totally get it. It's no problem. It's okay. He doesn't let him off. What he does is he, he says, like, let the dead bury the dead. And what he's doing here is actually kind of, it's clever, basically. He, the, the verbiage is he's saying, let the dead, which would mean the uh, spiritually, like the, those who don't follow him, bury the physically undead. Meaning he's kind of drawing them in, basically saying physical death and spiritual death. Let them handle their own problems while I'm here for freedom and I'm here for, for life and life to the fullest. And so he's kind of contrasting these two kingdoms. Now, whether you start to deal with difficulty around like, wow, that is a serious calling, Trey. This is not making me feel as good as I thought it would. It, it, it's in some ways we read it and, and I, I think it's what we need. And I say that as graciously as I can because at the end of the day, we, we have to know that, that there's so many things that get in the way of us and Jesus and I think most times it's actually ourselves. And it's ourselves because we are terrified about the, the, the fear of jumping into a kingdom and truly believing that we will be free there. Because we think if we can stand on the fence that we will get freedom, whatever we want. We can get freedom over here, we can get freedom over here, we can kind of try to blend the two. But what we find out is that's actually not freedom, that's guilt, that's slavery, that's uh, that's just this anxiousness, right? Like, oh, I should do that, or I should do this, or I'm in odds with this and this. And you just constantly are in this battle with yourself. And so what we do then is I think we start to make excuses. And, and I, I read this because later in Matthew 10, Jesus will say again, even probably more bluntly, which will be another week to discuss, he says, whoever loves his father and his mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And there's a lot more context to that. I'm just pulling it out simply. But it, it, this is not a one-off thing. Jesus is really calling us to utmost allegiance. Now, did Jesus love his family? Absolutely. Was he a great son? Absolutely. Like, we know that. And we can see that in other instances. So it's not like he's just like, don't talk to your family ever again. You're getting in the way of my relationship with, 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 with God, right? But what he's saying here is, and it appears is, and Jesus would know this man's heart, is that, look, you're just making excuses. First, it's your dad, which could be several years away. And then it's your job, and then it's you don't have enough money, and then you're married, you have kids, or then it's this, this hobby you want to do, or then it's this sickness, or whatever. Like, and, and you start to take this, and you put this in the 21st century, and you put this in your life, and how I many excuses do we have, right? You know, we say, well, I really want to follow you, but um, I really hate some of the Christians that I know, right? And so you're going to let them affect your ability to experience freedom. And so you're being enslaved by other people. Or you say, oh, I just like, I'm really focused on my career right now. And so you, you choose that over relationship. And so what happens is you're enslaving yourself again to something that will not provide. And so we make these excuses, and some of them we think are valid. And, and typically when we make excuses, you know, I was trying to think about all the reasons why I make excuses, which is too much. 
And if you've hung out with me for more than 20 minutes to play basketball with me, you know this to be true. And it is something that I'm trying to work on. Um, and, you know, I, I make excuses because I, I want to be justified. I don't want people to think it's my fault. I, know that, I want the person to know that I care, and so my excuse will try to, like, try to, try to mend that relationship. I, I make excuses because um, I might even have the opportunity to one-up or reveal my priorities. Like, oh, sorry, I couldn't do that. I had this thing, and it was really important. You're like, look at how important these things are. I, I make excuses because I want to prove something about myself to them. I make excuses out of ignorance, just the fact that I don't care, I don't want to know, or I don't, I don't want them to know that I care or don't care that much. And rather than just own up, uh, it's easier to just pin it on other people as well. And at the end of the day, though, this is, this is, this is going to take some unpacking, but Jesus is not going to allow ourselves to get in the way of him loving us. And it sounds really weird because you're like, wait, but at the end of the day, that's what we truly need and that's what we truly deserve is him loving us and us not ruining it because unfortunately we even ruin that. Think about the times that you're, you, know, you have a friend or a family member or a spouse or whatever and you're, you are wrestling with them and you know they're being dishonest with you. It is not just hurting you, it's hurting your relationship. Now you can't trust them. Now you, don't, you can't vote vulnerable with them. Now uh, you have strife in between you. And Jesus is not going to let our brokenness and our infection and any type of you know, issues that we have affect his ability to love us. And praise God. If you've ever heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, or you've been the recipient of it, or you've been that hurtful person that hurt someone else, it's like infectious. And the fact that Jesus can nip that in the bud, look straight into your eyes, and tell you straight up what you need to hear. I love you, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I've died for you, that you don't need to do anything to prove yourself, is the most powerful, beautiful thing, and we don't have to make excuses. And that is so freeing. That is not enslaving. Enslaving is us feeling like we have to show up to Jesus with a certain excuse or idea or agenda. And this guy, he is showing us that we even show up to Jesus with excuses. We say, well, this is not a good time. Well, and, and Jesus says, look, you're missing it. And, and here's what I want to just kind of, as we close um, this idea, is there's another story in, um, in uh, John 8 that uh, is this woman caught in adultery. It's this really great read. If you ever want to read it, it's a great story. But in the midst of that, um, this woman was clearly caught. Like she had done the deed and people had saw her, which is even creepier and crazier. And, and the, man, the man who, it takes two to tango, Okay, I don't know if you learned that in human sexuality in eighth grade, but uh, the man is nowhere to be found, and they bring this woman before, and they're, like, they're, gonna, they're trying to set Jesus up. It's all about setting Jesus up. They don't care about her at all, which is terrible. And Jesus does this profound thing. Everyone leaves. He basically like, calls them all to their own sin, and it's just him and her. And in this moment, we see Jesus in, in some, some profound way, he is the most gracious person ever, and he's also the most, most truthful person ever. And I don't know how he does it. I, we can't do it. I've tried, and said the right, I've tried to say the right thing at the right time. Never, never good. And he just crushes it. And what does he say, though? He says, where are your accusers? And she says, you know, well, they're not here, Lord. And he says, he says well, then I won't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. And if you, if you think about what he's saying, he is not, she's not excusing her sin, and he is, he is not, well, you know, it's, yeah, it's no big deal, like they tricked you. Like, he's not excusing it, but he's calling her into freedom. He's saying, 
I don't accuse you either. That's freedom. And then he's saying, go and sin no more. Go live a life that follows me. And so in that moment, what she actually needed was not, like, not getting herself, being her own enemy, not letting other people be her enemy. Jesus frees her in that. And I think in this instance, I, I think about these two guys. We don't find out if they follow him. We don't. There's not, like, there's not a follow-up a couple chapters later. And then those two guys, you know, we, don't, we don't know. What we do know, though, and what Matthew's focusing on here is less about them and more about his responses to the excuses, to the distractions, and to the things that we try to throw in front of Jesus to stop him because we know the weight of what, what he's calling us to. And because sometimes, weirdly enough, it's really fun and comfortable to sit on the fence for a while. And we think, well, I can just kind of play this game, right? Some seasons I'm doing good, career's good, people seem to think I'm a good person, I'm like playing this juggling game and you think you're good and then all of a sudden something doesn't go your way or, or you think God is like this genie sometimes and you're like, he's not giving me what I want, therefore I don't, I don't trust him and then you run to this kingdom and this kingdom is satisfying you and you're just jumping back and forth. It's like being in prison and running away and then deciding to go back and then it's, it's ridiculous. And, and, and here he's, he's saying, I'm not gonna put up with that and I'm not, I'm not, he's not being rude about it. But he's being exactly what we need to be. He's calling us to something much greater because he's not letting our unhealth and our brokenness affect his ability to love us. And so I think about this man, and put yourself in this guy's shoes. You tell Jesus, you say, like, you've heard all of his teaching. You're like, this guy's great. I want to follow him. But you go, you go up to Jesus and you say, hey, like, I just, I got to wait around for my dad to die. I don't know when it'll be, but I'm the oldest son. Like, this is my like basically family obligation, which family is a huge deal in this culture at this time. I got to stay around for that, but I will for sure follow you after. And Jesus says this to you. Now, we, like I said, we don't know if he followed him or not, but what we do know is that Jesus is not allowing ourselves to get in the, midst, in the way of him loving us. And, and that's, this, that's, the, that's the message and that's the priority here as Jesus does this is, and I think that at the end of the day, this is, if you want a big idea that you can write down, it's simple. It's that following Jesus requires all of us, like all of ourselves. And, and in that, it's, it's just the most freeing thing, but it's not always easy. I just want to close with this. I'm going to invite the band up uh, as we kind of finish here. But uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of my favorite theologians, he writes this. He says, if our Christianity has ceased to be serious about discipleship or about following Jesus, if we have watered down the gospel, the good news, into emotional uplift, with, which makes no costly demands and which fails to distinguish between natural and Christian existence, then we cannot help but regard the cross as just an ordinary, everyday thing, as one of the trials and tribulations of life. And what he's saying is, if we're not willing to understand the weight of what it means to follow Jesus and the beauty of his love in the midst of that, then we're missing it. And I think about, as, as I, I think about um, other people in the Bible, that, that this difficulty, this hardship, this kind of living in two kingdoms and, and, and like you feel like you're suffering, right? You feel like you're frustrated or you're, just, you're not content, that almost everyone in the, I'd say a lot of people in the old, but almost every, everyone in the New Testament has dealt with that suffering and they have, they have written about it, and they have said, uh, let me pull up like the list here. They have said, Peter says, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is coming among you, but rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. James, Jesus' half-brother, says, 
Consider it nothing but joy when you face trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and endurance. Paul, who like literally just got, had so much suffering. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you for the sake of the body of Christ, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And he writes again, he says, all the things that I've known that I thought was important, I count as dung. He uses the phrase dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because of my own righteousness, because I have the righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness. Praise God that Jesus, in the moments of our own excuses and our own brokenness, he doesn't berate us. He doesn't make us feel guilty. He pierces right through it, and he just loves you. And so freedom, the answer to freedom that we are asking ourselves is freedom costs something, and it costed Jesus something drastic in his death and his torturing and unfair trial and much more. And in the midst of that, we share in that suffering as we also share in, in the rejoicing of what he's done for us. So as we close, we always like to do this. Uh, we, we offer this every Sunday. We have this juice and bread right here. Um, it's, there's some in the back if you want to grab one. But if you believe in Jesus or you'd like to make that decision, this is an opportunity to do that. Uh, we take this juice and this bread as a symbol and a reminder that Jesus asked us to do in the Bible, that, um, that this is symbolically his body and his blood that was shed for us. And we take it as a community to remind ourselves that his sacrifice is enough, that he is piercing through our brokenness, and that he will love us regardless of how much we try to not let him love us. And so uh, we're going to give you about a minute if you'd like to take that. If not, um, you can just sit and reflect. We also have people in the back who would love to pray for you. And then we're going to close in uh, one more song in just a minute. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.